Hi there, and welcome back to The Design Podcast. I'm Ashton Snook, and this is the show where we connect you with the creators and makers behind some of today's best-known brands and products. Today, we're joined by the wonderful Robert Brunner. Robert is a fantastic designer, leader, author, and public speaker who has inspired many of us in the field of product design and has shaped some incredible user experiences for millions of people around the world. Robert has had an incredible career, from co-founding Lunar Design to becoming Director of Industrial Design for Apple and establishing the legendary IDG. He's also been partner at Pentagram and also co-founded Ammunition, a phenomenal uh, design studio that has a brilliant focus on developing experiences that really matter. He's worked with clients like Nike, Microsoft, Square, Nokia, and of course, one of my favorite brands and products, he's chief designer at Beats. This is really a great show, packed with charming stories and insights from a real living legend of design. Let's get into the conversation. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, uh, how are you? It's, uh, it's, what time is it there? It's like uh, it's 10 o'clock? Not so late. It's, uh, it's 7 p.m. So it's not, oh, it's not too so bad. It's not so bad. Yeah, not so bad. Gosh, I don't where where to start is is a challenge with your career, obviously, Robert. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's so freaking long. It's just you know, I'm just ancient. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, I think probably a good place to start, and just from I've been speaking with a, a bunch of folks, uh, like contacts this week. They said if you've got Robert on the show, you're going to have to talk about Apple, which um, I hope you don't mind diving into. I know we're rolling back about thirty years there, but. It is such a, a pinnacle and an, an idealistic like thing for us to talk about. Yeah, sure. Um, cool. So you you joined Apple from Luna in was it about eighty nine? Yes. Yes. Nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine, and he went in as the industrial design director, and essentially you you started the IDG, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, and so backing up from that a little bit because I think it's important for context. Um, so I, you know, we had uh, Gerard Furbishad, Jeff Smith, and I started Lunar uh, in oh, I guess it was around 1984, 85, maybe I don't know. We we we'd actually started another company called Interform, and did that for a while, and uh, kind of blew up. We had another partner involved who was sort of funding it, and ran into a lot of disagreements, and so we just mm-hmm. said, oh, well, we're going to go do our own thing, and you know, classic style. Um, and at that point, you know, we didn't really need much money. I always, you know, sort of look back in terms of what we survived on at that time. And it was, you know, nothing. <laughs> um, but, you know, so we, we started the, this thing called Lunar and and started to build clients and relationships. And um, we um, we had a friend who was working for Apple, a guy named Bill Russell House, who had actually been the designer behind the Apple Lisa, you know, going way back. Yeah. And he was a really amazing engineer. Um, product designer kind of dabbled in industrial design. And um, at the time, um, Apple was still working with Frog and Hartmut had this ironclad contract. So, but there was a lot of sort of um, re- rebellion in the ranks around working with Frog and, and um, <laughs> jobs had moved on. And so they asked us to do this project, but it, they didn't want to call it design because they were fearful of Hartmut. So it was quote unquote, an engineering project. 
uh, but it was really design, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and it, it went really well. And then this sort of project feed kept kind of escalating. And pretty soon we were doing mainstream programs. Um, the, probably the most impactful one was the Macintosh LC. And it went very well and, and launched and had, did incredibly well. And so um, I was happy at Lunar. I mean, we were building something and it was going very well. I think we had about 18 or 19 people in the office. And I was approached by uh, a headhunter who was actually strangely working for the guy I reported to in Apple, but he had a head, the headhunter contact me and um, about coming in to lead the design team. And I was, you know, obviously very flattered, um, thought about it and said, no, <laughs> uh, because one, again, was Luna was going great. And two, at that time, design was not really happening within Apple, right? It, uh, there was a, a small team, but largely was being done outside with um, first Frog, but then a, a sort of, um, a number of, of consultants working working with Apple. And, you know, I didn't really, I'm a designer. I see my personal equity as a designer. I didn't really just want to go in and manage something. And so I said no. And they they didn't like that, but accepted it, went back to work, doing my thing. And then, you know, about some three months later, they came back and said, no, no, we we really want you. You know, what would it take? And you know, I, I sort of, um, I often say it's this sort of um, watch out what you ask for, you might get it. And I said, look, you know, if, if any company in the world could support a world-class internal design studio, it would be Apple. So I would do that. And they said, that sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> and so, okay. Um, and then all of a sudden this major, you know, and, and it was, it was still, I still wasn't sure, honestly. Um, again, I saw myself in a very different way as a corporate leader um, and so that's it was sort of a big change and big leap for me and and again i was had a really good thing going and i struggled with it for a while but ultimately i you know this one day i remember this th thought popping into my mind which mm. went something like don't be stupid you're young enough to make a big mistake and recover right yeah. <laughs> so um so go for it right so i did and yeah so i when i joined the company it really the mission was not just the products and projects in play, but really sort of build this internal studio and pretty much staff it from zero and get everything working about it, which, you know, at the time I didn't even think about what a monumental task it was. You know, I just mm -hmm. kind of did it and just got, got working on it and, you know, it turned out well, but it was, it was amazing, but a lot of work. I can, I, uh, I can, <laughs> I can kind of imagine building teams myself with much, much smaller brands and certainly in a completely different space from, from where I think Apple was back then. So it was really, you you went in there, you asked for, for this opportunity to build build a culture, build a team. And, mm -hmm. and that's ultimately what convinced you to, to, to depart from Luna and, and go inside and try and build this thing with them. Yes. And, and you know, honestly, in, in retrospect, I don't think the senior management management really understood what I meant. <laughs> um, you know, it sounded good, but I don't think they understood what it would take um, in terms of staffing and facility and money and time and, and effort and disruption. Um, but, you know, I got the go ahead and sort of went, um, went about figuring out how to do it, um, which, you know, 
in itself was a project, right? It's sort of yeah. figuring out how do you, how you actually make this happen. And um, I, I um, again, I, I, under the sort of umbrella of naivete, I kind of adopted this sort of policy of, um, you know, it's a common phrase, but very useful one. Um, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. And just went about doing things. I mean, uh, securing our studio was a point. Mm. In, as an example that, um, you know, when I first went there, I, I, you know, I remember my first day almost thinking, what a, what a fucking mistake I've made because I go, you know, I go in and of course I, I, before that I hadn't seen where I was going to be sitting. It's all, you know, very secure. And so mm. I go into this building and I'm basically in a, you know, what there's something about an eight by 10 Herman Miller cubicle without a window amongst the sea of engineers. Wow. And I'm just sitting there going, this is really depressing, you know, <laughs> how am I going to get anybody to work in this environment? Um, I don't even want to work in this environment. Um, you know, it's Herman Miller action office is not the most conducive to creativity as far as furniture systems go. So um, I immediately went out just sort of nosing around and finding what buildings around the campus were available and actually found this one just off the main campus, but in kind of a quiet little area, which um, had this large, pretty undeveloped, half of it was pretty undeveloped. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, sort of, again, under the table, managed to get a deal, kind of told the guy I was reporting to, you know, I'm doing this, don't worry about it, I'll get it figured out. And managed to talk to the interiors group and they ended up bringing in, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the architecture group studios, um, very, very well-known group, very high level. Um, just, you know, they kind of like, oh, we've got some extra budget. We'll have studios do this, right? So I kind of beg, borrowed and, and stole whatever I could to get this studio built out. And I'll never forget when I, um, the VP I reported to brought him over to show to him. And he was like, you know, how, how did this happen? How did you do this, right? So, but anyway, there was, it was just sort of this process of it because I, I, I knew that not only to do the work, but to attract the requisite talent, I would have to have a great place to work in and, and myself too. I mean, I'm, I'm borderline claustrophobic, so I have to have at least, you know, like 16 feet above my head. Right. And, yeah. um, and I just think for some reason I've got it in my mind, that's, that's a creative environment, big open high ceilings. Right. And so anyway, just went about building this thing and, and it was just that process of just continually, you know, knocking down the barriers and, and moving forward. Yeah, incredible. The these um the studio, I was I'm a massive Apple nerd, particularly around what, what you were building then subsequently, of course, what Johnny Ive and the rest of the team built back in the nineties onwards. I was always when I was at college, I was always kind of trying to find this uh like the floor plans of what the studio looked like. I was don't know why I was fascinated with what does that environment feel like? How did you, you know, foster uh, collaboration? Did you have like a coffee space? Was was the actual layer of the environment as well as the actual scale of it? really important to, to driving conversation and, and attracting and the talent. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I, I you know, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, and I honestly, when you say that the, the coffee machine was like the, one of the most important things going on in the studio. Right? <laughs> and no, we, we had a, it was, it was very much an open environment. Um, I was the only one with an office and really just because when you're a senior manager of the corporation, you have to have a lot of private conversations. So yeah. I ended up with an office, but honestly spent most of the time on the studio. And, and again, we were stuck with the furniture that the, the 
campus used, but we put it together in a much more creative way. So it wasn't, right. it didn't feel like little cubicles. It actually was very open, small amount of privacy, just um, built out this sort of center spine and built everything off it in terms of a layout. And it was just set up. So, you know, and and I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of drive-by collaboration. You know, I, I think collaboration is, is great when it's sort of organized and and done in sort of very brainstormy processy kind of way. But I think most collaboration happens like, hey, come over here, take a look at this. You know, what do you think? Um, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? Do you have another idea? You know, that so so fostering that kind of environment. And, and any in many ways, that's how I manage and, and do creative direction is just sort of go sit down with someone and say, okay, what, what's going on? What's working on? Let's take a look at that. How can I help you? Right. Yeah. And and so that's that's how we we built that studio out. Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's how pre, you know, situation we found ourselves in for the last year. That's how um, we were running our studio as well at my last company. Uh, the natural friction points, I think, are so important, right? And that's that fascination I had, you know, and look at the work you were producing, you know, all inspire, inspiring for generations of designers since. So, um, build, you know, kind of looking on those other elements of building this, you know, IDG group out, sorry, the industrial design group. What else were you looking to try and create there? What were the other mechanisms that you were really focusing on? You've got, you got your physical space. Well, I mean, there were some things that I thought were very important and then began to build on. One, you know, as sort of I've been alluding to, is really build it out as a creative studio, not as a corporate design group. Mm-hmm. And, and I had this belief, which I, which I think was valid, that, you know, some of the reasons you didn't see really amazing work out of a lot of corporations had a lot to do with not just the physical environment, but the the social environment and and the and the structure of things. So I, I really felt that I wanted to build it as almost like a consultancy, mm-hmm. you know, as I would have as I did with Lunar and I would do with another, and then build infrastructure around that team to interface with the business units. Right. So really build this creative core and then and then staff around that to sort of manage the relationships with the business units and sort of control, or, or I wouldn't say filter, but sort of manage the communications, right? So it doesn't become overwhelming. When you work in a corporation, I mean, you can spend your entire day in, in meetings and emails without a problem. In fact, you can go home and you continue to do that. So, you know, as a creative individual, you have to carve out solid blocks of time where you are immersed in your work. You, it just won't work otherwise. So it was sort of building out almost a protective mechanism to allow that to happen. And, and that was, that was something operationally felt was very important. Um, and then, and then culturally, well, the other thing was that, you know, I mentioned the, the studio being fairly open, but also we had, we didn't have a lot of levels in the team. You know, I did, I didn't really want to set up like, a, you know, four managers who reported to me who had five managers reporting to them who had each had four designers reporting to them. I just think that's, layers of bullshit right it only helps when it comes to writing reviews so um so it was you know it's like really it was sort of i led the team and i had um a group a a number of people i said reporting around each business unit and then the design studio and and then the model shop and ever and but there was no sort of real hierarchy when we had staff meetings everybody came to the staff meetings it wasn't just you know direct reports and things like that so really sort of making that feel fairly flat Mm-hmm. Right. And and that was really important to the, I think, the next point, which was really creating a, an environment of of shared ownership, right? That that 
it's, you know, in some ways this was self-preservation, but, but also just really wanting to have a, an ethos in the studio and an editorial in the studio and that was owned and owned by all and, and developed by all, right? And, and of course I had a lot of say about where we should go or shouldn't go, but, but really I wanted that shared ownership. And, and, and that goes into, you know, how we recruited people. And, and I'm always, I, I always have a big believer in talent. And in fact, um, you know, one of the phrases I use often, somebody told me years ago, and I wish I could figure out who it was, was this, this phrase is your, your, the statement of you're only as strong as the backs of the people who carry you. Right. And so um, hire better people than you. <laughs> And, and, and really take that on as a, as a philosophy. And, and so, you know, having, focusing on really amazing talent and focusing on this shared ownership, I think was a sort of culture that, that continues to exist, you know, in the, in the Apple ID studio today, it was just sort of this, you know, this idea that we're, we're on a mission. We all, we all own part of it. Mm. Uh, we're all going to play our roles in making it happen. And, and I think that, that really, you know, that and sort of creating this culture around innovation and design quality and integrity, I think really sort of helped bond everyone together very strongly and, and, and turned out to be a, a very sort of powerful idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm, unquestionably. I, I don't know if just getting too much into the nitty gritty of it, but for me, I think it's just an area I love, I love talking about. When you say like fostering the shared ownership, now what, what does that look what does that look like for you in terms of the way you would set up a project and, and designers would, would, would interact with each other on that? Well, I, there's a couple levels to that. One was, you know, what 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 is our our direction, right? And you know, at at, at that time, you know, the big the big buzz phrase was design language, right? What is your design mm -hmm. language? Just, you know, I, I believe kind of an antiquated idea, but it was um, a useful tool to talk about what is this this thing that we're doing and what entails it, and what is sort of the vocabulary that we're working in, and and what are the things we rely we rely on to build. It. Build identity and 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 forward. So that was um, a almost managed in very much a conversational way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we of course did work and decided where we wanted to go with it. But as we developed it, we constantly reviewed it, talked about it, decided what we would do, what we wouldn't do, what we would put in as evergreen, what we would look at evolving. You know, all those was. All those ideas were more of a conversation than here's a rule book, go do it, right? Which mm -hmm. I think, I think that sort of notion of design language, the damaging idea was that let's spend uh, three to six months creating a rule book and hand it out at everybody to everybody, and then we're done for three years, right? I think that's 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 a huge. By the time you write the book, everything's changed. Yeah. So, um, so the the sort of idea that you know this is. An ongoing conversation about what we're doing as a brand and as a team, um, and then similarly, when in in projects, of course, we had, you know, um, designers assigned to certain projects, and we had these business unit leaders helping sort of manage and communicate with the engineering and operation and, and marketing teams. But again, we would review collectively, you know, it and it, and it it wasn't just okay, bring all your stuff into Robert's office and let's talk about it. It was more, um, look, let's, let's at our weekly meeting, show us, show everybody what you're doing and let's talk about it. And, 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 and there's a couple sides to it, I think. And, and it's something I've continued today about how we manage our studio. I think it's, you know, you really, of course, want 
your team to push and take risks and really move the bar forward. But they need to be supported in that, right? They need to feel that someone has their back, right? That someone is is there with them and, and providing ideas, not just ideas, but just emotional support. It's just, yeah. it's just a very unique thing. So, you know, having that, that forum where, um, you know, okay, there's, there's something you need to do on this product. that's going to piss a lot of people off, right? <laughs> but I'm there to support you on it and, and we're going to help figure it out for you and we'll, we'll back you up. Right. I'm not, you may not be successful, but you're not alone out there. Right. And, and I think that's really important, especially in a corporation, because, you know, what happens is you're doing something that's going to make a lot of other people's jobs harder. Right? Yeah. So they start to build a campaign against it, right? It's just this social construct. And so having the support and help and, and, and directive to do that is it becomes very important actually making things happen. So that, so I think it was, I mean, it sounds kind of mushy and, and, and a little nonlinear and some of it was, but it, I think it was very important as an idea of how we sort of manage work and manage the creative output of our studio. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's very, very similar concepts to the way that um, we, we we work as well today. It's a really interesting one, though, when you're trying to push those boundaries, how far you can go, even even when you're managing the team and and becoming the shield, or sometimes the the ball pushing the china shop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how yeah. how you balance the you know obviously because you you make more work every time you, you create a new design, it's pushing the boundaries for engineering or or product, and it's we're going for a similar exercise where we're revamping the what you know we i think it's very similar to the design language times the the common thing seems to be design system but you know much of the same i always think it's a really interesting one to to, to go for it as as a leader do you think you have to be measured in how how far you push or do you think that you should almost brutally protect the design idea and really really go after that in the, in a conversation well you you have to take responsibility for it first of yeah. all right i mean i i think this sort of, you don't want to fall into this stereotype of the creative designer who has a vision and a gesture, but no idea of how to actually achieve it, right? Yeah. That's your job. You people go figure that out. You know, I, I, I think that's, that's not, at least for my, my personal philosophy, not a way to go at it. I think, you know, really, um, you know, you need, if you want to push something, I mean, first of all, it, you know, it, it's always really interesting to me how everyone loves the idea of innovation, right? Um, but they don't like the idea of doing risky things, right? But, you know, innovation and risk, I always say, are, 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 are uniquely coupled, right? Because by default, if you're innovating, you're doing something it hasn't done before that is in fact a risky thing to do. And, you know, so people love the idea, oh, they're really innovative, but we can't do that on this program. We don't have the time or money. We, you know, that's it's too risky, right? So save your innovation for next time, right? Um, yeah. I don't know how many times I've heard that, and you know, but but I think our approach is said one, okay, here we have some ideas of how we can do this, and two, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get in there and help you figure it out, right? It's not we're going to give you uh, um, our 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 three D geometry and go away. You know, we're going to work very hard with you and, and get in the nitty gritty to not only figure out the design issues, the operational issues, the bill of materials issues, mm. everything that you know needs to happen to make this thing a reality. Um, it doesn't always succeed, but you get a lot farther with, you know, the idea that, you know, here's something we believe in, we're willing to put our time and money where our mouth is to, to help make it happen. Right? 
And and I think that's that's an important lesson I've always preached to, to my teams is you know don't just you know that sounds really cool. How are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but and I think it's important you have an answer to that question. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, take responsibility and then drive, drive that and get into. I, I've you know work with the engineers, work with work with those different stakeholders to to bring it to life. Really, is what we're yeah the same with yeah. that. So that's great. And then so. Again, I'm probably we could probably talk about Apple for the entire uh, recording, but um, I'm just just trying to think about all these different parts of your career as well. So in in the mid '90s and early '90s, Apple, you know, was not doing as well as it perhaps could have been, you know, before. And in '96, you within '96 you made the transition from Apple into into the world famous Pentagram. Yeah, yeah, that that was. Uh... I, in retrospect, it wasn't a tough choice. I, I yeah, think a lot of things had happened at Apple in terms of leadership. Um, Scully had left. Michael Spindler was the CEO. I, Spindler was. I really liked Michael Spindler. Was a, a brilliant man, but very more of an operations person than a design person. Emotional, but not not really sort of. Um, always making that connection between design and business, and and so the, it was, there was a lot of challenge. There, there was also within the company, uh, the company was, you know, had this idea they were at war with Microsoft and Intel, which really meant they were at war with like ninety percent of the industry, <laughs> and trying to fight those battles on every front possible, um, which meant the product line was really huge. The number of things that we were doing and, and our ability to execute on them was being very challenged. And, you know, and, and it just was an environment that was not fun, honestly, mm. <laughs> and difficult to do good work in. So um, I had always said that I, I wasn't going to do that job forever. I never yeah. saw it as, okay, I'm, I'm a lifer here. It was really a, a period that I wanted to do and learn about and hopefully accomplish something. But always was, I always thought I'm going to go back and open up another design studio when, when the time is right. And I was thinking about it. And honestly, the idea of, you know, I got to go find a space. I got to go hire people. I have to rent a copier, you know, <laughs> yeah. things, right? <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't find it that appealing anymore, but um, I was, um, I the story had happened. I was invited to a lunch at the Museum of Modern Art here in San Francisco and was sitting next to Kit Heinrichs, who was at the time a partner in Pentagram in the San Francisco office at the lunch, had a lovely conversation. And, and at some point he said, hey, we would like to bring on um, an industrial design partner in Pentagram. Do you know anybody? You know, it's not not right. wink wink. Yeah. Right. And um, and I remember I said, wow, think about it. And, and as I was driving home, I, um, I became fascinated by it because, you know, my, how I saw Pentagram was really Kenneth Grange, right? Um, I, w I remember early when I was in school, I discovered a book in the library at the company I was working on Kenneth's work for Kenwood and thought it was really amazing and really in mm -hmm. inspired me. So I had this equity in my mind of Pentagram is, you know, Ken Kenneth Grange. Um, and of course knew about the rest of the partnership, but that was sort of what I thought. And, and so I began to look at it and, and, and really became fascinated by the model, mm -hmm. which is sort of partnership model where 
every partner in the company had their own team, had their really their own business, but operating under this um, larger structure and, and brand umbrella and, and collaborative model. And, you know, I thought, well, this is really interesting. And in some ways made a lot of sense for me at the time. And so I said, well, I'll do it and went through the process of joining the partnership, which is a lot like getting married. Um, right. <laughs> and all that stuff. But, you know, it takes about six months, but I did it and, and decided to join the San Francisco office. And uh, I think I think that was around 96. Yeah, that that, that happened, um, which which was another great, amazing experience. Another another time of professional growth for me. Yeah, I, I don't. I've got, got to admit, I don't know a huge amount about the the work you were doing at Pentagram at, at that time. What were some of the the highlights for you in the in the, in the early phases of of your experience there? Well, that, that's a good question because it it actually shaped. I'm sorry, I've got some trucks going by here. <laughs> it actually shaped it actually shaped a lot about what I ended up wanting to do with ammunition. Um, I I ended up doing a lot of corporate work, which right. um, you know for a variety for. Microsoft and and for Dell and for Hewlett Packard and you know and large you know and and part of it was I think leveraging my equity and experience at Apple. Um, I also worked for Samsung, so we did work for Nike, hmm. um, and these were all very large, you know, and and you know from a consulting point of view, very lucrative projects and and. And really kept the studio, my studio, going for for quite a while. In fact, I I grew to have the largest team in the company. I mean, most most of the partners tended to have as few as one, but as many as six to eight people working under them. And I had a team of like 25, 26 people wow. um, working working under me, which kind of freaked everybody out from the cash flow point of view, right? <laughs> my use of my use of capital, they used to say, um, and. But that's what I needed to do to do this work. And, and the work that I was doing was very different than most of the other partners who were working in, in identity or communications and that there was, it was very deep technically, um, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that needed to be designed and developed over a long period of time. It's just a very different gig. So, um, but you know, the work, it was this sort of, there was some startups in there, um, which I really loved which was really began, sort of became clear to me about some of the things that made work better for me, which, you know, the corporate stuff, again, large, stable, but largely not challenging, difficult to do anything interesting. Mm -hmm. Most of the good work never saw the light of day. Um, you know, just not really um, professionally satisfying. And, and I began to realize, you know, it, it was in many ways what some people refer to as an opportunity cost, right? That um, really we survive by the work that gets out into the world, right? Mm -hmm. That people that can see what, when you just said, I, I don't know the stuff you did in your pentagram. It's because the vast majority of it never saw the light of day. And I began to realize that that is a problem and it's not really what I want to do. And but but these these other startups where I was working with founders and doing something in entirely new and with a you know very sort of close relationship and tight decision making and and a lot of responsibility and respect. It's like but that was great. You know, that mm -hmm. really was what I felt like I wanted to work, how I wanted to work. 
Um, so, the, but that period was, you know, from the pentagram side, the partnership was amazing. The, the, the individuals in pentagram, it's still in pentagram, are, are some of the smartest, most talented people I have ever worked with. And mm. many of them remain my friends. Um, but I, I began to realize that it wasn't the right platform for me. And, and in many ways, I was an, a lone individual within the partnership. There wasn't, there was, a, Danny Vile was doing um, product work, but it was very different than the type of work that I was doing. And so I was really alone and there would be some collaboration, but not a lot. So um, I began to see, step back and see what was going on in the world of industrial design in the sort of um, increasing perception of value amongst the business community of, of design, right? And, yeah. and it was really sort of moving from this position of being, oh, kind of a, something we just need to do, um, make stuff look nice, whatever to, no, this is, this is a core success factor, right? And in many, and, and some, I, some even moving to the idea of design being at par with the other major disciplines of, you know, engineering and marketing and operations, right? The, the, mm starting to be another leg in the stool, so to speak. And so I, I think I felt like there was an opportunity to really be part of that. And, and ironically, I just felt that Pentagram wasn't quite right to do that for me. So I decided to leave, which mm -hmm. in itself was sort of shocking because um, I, I think up to that point, in all the history, there had been only one other partner that had quit. And I think he did to like go live with his girlfriend in Denmark or something. So right. um, <laughs> I, everyone else either was asked to leave or died. Right. And so, wow. I, um, <laughs> and so it was sort of like, what? Um, but it, it actually was, was turned out to be great. The, it was very supported. Um, the fact that my book of business was very unique to what I did and, and who I am, it wasn't really transferable. Mm. It sort of made that easier. My team, same thing. It wasn't like my industrial designers could go work for other partners. They're kind of chained to me. So it, it all made that, that separation pretty clean. And, and everybody was, you know, as, as supportive as possible, not always happy about it, but as supportive as possible. And, and, and you said, we remain friends and I, I count mm. that experience as very important in terms of, you know, the, so the, the pure creativity and dedication to excellence that the other partners had just was constantly a daily inspiration mm. and, and, and really stayed with me in terms of, you know, you know, looking at my own work or the work of my team and, and, you know, what to feel good about. And I think that, that served very well, but it just, you know, it was for me time to do something different, try to try time to build a different model time, trying to take advantage of what was going on in the world. And that that's, sort of the pentagram story in a very small nutshell we could do an hour on pentagram as well yeah i'm sure i'm sure so um i i, I want to get into it, but i, I kind of want to dive straight into ammunition so we you, you've gone from pentagram you've 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 broken off and, and you found i mean what was the what was the focus of the studio when you, you first set out to, to build this thing well you know it it was interesting that you know pentagram is a multidisciplinary firm Right. And in fact, I was industrial designer. There's graphic designers, um, a few architects. Um, we're just starting to figure out digital. But it, the multidisciplinary 
collaboration around specifically what I did was wasn't wasn't working. And and I I one thing I learned through my time at Apple and then through the work I'd done at Pentagram was that really great products were multidisciplinary efforts, right? It really, you know, because the 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 customer, the end user, what have you, will doesn't sort of break down into components what they experience. They learn about something, they decide to buy it, they receive it, they open the box, they figure it out, they they learn how to operate it, they handle it, they all these things go into their experience and and their their emotional idea of what that makes that experience good. Yeah. And so to do something really good, you have to be able to build that entire chain of events. And of course, the you know, the product at the center, the actual thing, but there's many, many things that go into making it really great. Mm-hmm. And and that was one of the key ideas around ammunition was just to build this studio, which is very much about doing great products, but everything that goes into a great product. Um, the second thing which became really clear to me when I was at Pentagram was um, I, I wanted to change up or modify the business model that I, I had this epiphany one day that um, we actually gave away intellectual property really cheaply. You know, I think I was reading an article about um, some software IP being valued at hundreds of millions of dollars and realizing, well, I, I'm creating intellectual property in this mm. design and I get paid my, you know, as long as it's a good project and I get paid my fee, I'm usually happy, right? And and I get to pay my people and everything's cool. But then you start to look at, well, wait a minute, I just created this value, which you could pretty easily pull out and say that value just created X hundreds of millions of dollars of value in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, but I'm, I'm getting my, you know, 200 to $500 an hour or whatever I was charging to do it. So um, maybe that's not good enough or, or maybe there's other ways and so that's i began to think about what could we do differently to sort of change that equation and mm-hmm. and, and and value the contributions that we make differently and so so that was that was another thing um and then as i as i mentioned before i think you know really wanted to focus as much of the business possible on working with either startups or with incumbents that were doing were doing something new right they were moving into new areas of business and 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 were trying things they hadn't done before and didn't quite know how to do and or again someone starting something entirely new with a thing that really hadn't been done before in the way that they wanted to do it or had envisioned it and working very directly with those stakeholders to do that 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 was those were the best projects i'd ever had and i wanted to have more of those right and do that do that consistently and so that that was that was really the sort of impetus of of getting ammunition going was really those sort of three basic ideas of everything it takes to do a great product. Let's find a different way to do it financially, and and let's do the kind of work we want to do, and and you know at, at a top level, like you know I, when um, my business partner Matt Rollinson was joining, um, you know he said, well, what you know I remember him asking me, well, what 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 are the core values? And I said something to the effect of. Um, do great work, make lots of money, have fun at it. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> and, you know, so like, yeah, well, okay, that's that's just the truth, right? Um, yeah. You know, but but I I think you know as we begin to develop it, develop it, there was you know, I I think some other things that came into it. I mentioned this, you know, 
and some of the things, again, they're sort of building up in the past, this idea of empowerment, of empowering ourselves and our team to do, do the great work, this focus on talent and quality. Um, the, the idea of the changing the business model sort of turned to this idea we call partnership, where you know, we essentially, what it end up, ended up being is we, were, we began investing in the people we worked with. Right. And, and it started out being investing our time, but over and later it began actually investing money and, mm-hmm. and forming partnerships. And that partnership could take the form of us owning equity that took, sometimes took the form of um, being paid by return on sales. But somehow we had skin in the game, um, which ended up creating a, an effect that we hadn't anticipated, but actually in many ways is more powerful than the financial incentives was that we became better designers. That when we were embedded in the business proposition, two things occurred. One, we were more motivated to look at the bigger picture and figure out not just what would make us happy, but would make the project the product successful in the world. And then second, we became more respected within that organization. You know, we had skin yeah. in the game. We, were, we weren't the hired gun who was going to disappear when you know, when the files were delivered, right? We were, um, you know, going to be there as part of it. And, and, and that also started to manifest in, especially with the startups where we took roles in helping shape their businesses, not just shape their products. Yeah. And, and that, that became something very powerful. And, and, and in fact, even spilled over into the work we were doing that was still on a more traditional fee for, service contract and it, it used to scare some people. We'd find that, you know, we, we weren't right for everybody because we would take this, even if we weren't in a literal partnership, we would take that mentality of sort of tough love um, right. with our clients and not everybody likes that, right? Yeah. <laughs> not everyone <laughs> likes their consultants to be pushing back on them constantly. And, and so those became very important. And then, as I mentioned, the thing I learned about our team was this, this, this sort of balance of, of a culture of support and, and expectations, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of, we have really high expectations on the work you do, but we're gonna really support you in doing that. And that those became sort of very important parts of our, our studio. What an incredible way to do it. I love, I love that idea of the partnerships. I mean, I, I worked, in, worked in startups, well, no, near the degree that you were, but I started my career working in, in startups and I got a little bit of a sense that, and I think you're totally right. If you feel like you've got ownership in that, in that company, I think similar to the, the culture you were describing back at Apple, um, whether it's financial or emotional, I, I totally, you're right. I think it drives investment and as a consequence, you get a better product company output entirely from it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I'd be the first to admit that in my past, there are projects I did simply because I wanted it in my portfolio. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted this really cool thing that I could show my friends and family, and you know, and they would be amazed at. Um, I wasn't necessarily thinking about how is it how was it going to be successful out into the world and and generate value and income for the people that were spending money to build it and things like that. So, mm-hmm. it um, you know, and and I begin to realize you can do both, right? You can do, and and that's I think a part of the culture of our ammunition, our studio, is that you don't have to compromise one for the other. You, this whole idea of art versus commerce is bullshit, right? You, <laughs> you, 
it just takes a lot of work and some and some smarts and some talent to figure out how to do both and do do amazing work that it is in fact commercially successful. Yeah, uh, totally. I, I think a good um, historical reference like is is what um, Rain Charles Eames achieved, right? I mean, it's a similar sort of story that there's a lot of hard work starting built on furniture, but starting built on the splints. Mm. Uh, and you know, decades later, at the time, they've managed to establish such a you know uh, iconic design work. And yet it was, you know, very commercially successful, hugely in the States, particularly. Um, yeah. So you're right. I think that's so, so true. It can be art and, you know, financially the right thing to do. Yeah. And I almost say, I say this is, you know, if you step back and look at it, you know, there and there, and it is kind of an old school idea that art and commerce are mutually exclusive. Um, but where, where, where it comes very powerful is, is when you throw in culture. Right. And, and, and you see that today, but, you know, that um, taking a humanistic view on the things you put out into the world and, and driving a, a very human idea of, of art in the things that we surround ourselves with can be extremely powerful mm -hmm. from a business point of view. Right. And but it takes some bravery and, and commitment to do that. Um, but anyway. That that I mean, there's I could go on and on about our our, our studio. There's a, a large things that we. It's, it's interesting because we're kind of going through a, right now a little bit of an exercise that um, we decided to um, apply some of our own medicine to ourselves. And that okay. you know, we, well, you know, we we work with companies all the time on really being very clear about who they are and what they stand for, and and what they do and what's important. And we, through some conversations, we said, you know, it's time to take stock in ourselves and do that and be very clear about what this business is about and where we want to take it. Right. And that, that, that's that's been actually an interesting thing to have. You know, we've been having these we have uh, a few strategists on our team that are really amazing. And you know, Matt and I, two times a week, have these hour long conversations with them over the last month or so about right. what <laughs> What is it we're doing? What does it really mean? And where do we want to go? And all these things that I think are very important things to do regularly. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any any revelations that you can talk about at this stage? Or, um, well, I, I think you know some things that we've just started to put down on paper that we believe in. You know that um, you know, like one is you know, design is not a moment, right? It, you know, it it is in fact an ongoing habit that is intrinsic to success. Right. It's, mm. it's it's always designing. It's not it's not a singular thing that happens. Right. So so it's something to not only that we embody, but embody with the people we work with. Um, and and along those lines, there there also there's there's no singular process. Right. That's that's something that's also a misnomer that they're okay. We're going to get out a template and lay it down. Yeah. That's how we're going to do this. Right. And is we we don't rely on any specific process to do good work. We rely on our collective talent, and we have. Mm you know, subroutines and things we do to achieve that, but there's no, there's no distinct linearity that happens to things. Um, and that, that I think is an important thing to understand as well. It stops you from being guilty about things being messy once in a while. It's just the way they are, right? It's yeah, it's life. Way, yeah. You know? um, that, you know, the, the, I was just talking about this, this cognizance around design being a humanistic pursuit, right? That it is not mechanical and it is not, purely economic it's it's a caring thing to do for people you know we want things to be better and and, and better for as many people as, as possible um 
other one that I think is really important that we've come to recognize is we can't do this alone, right? That, that those relationships that we have are extremely important and it's important to invest in them and they be deep and long lasting because they, we rely on the variety of other companies and organizations we work with to, to deliver things um, and, and to really invest in that. Um, Another thing which we've known, which we're continue to characterize, is that to design as much of it as possible, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Not, not not be satisfied with with this little slice that we could do very well. That again, you know, if we're in this to for for commercial success and for building brands and ideas that have power, we have to design as much of it as we can, and to the point of being very bullish and bossy about that right <laughs> um, and and then then that leads to the last thing which i think is you know which is something i've come to understand and 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 i and i do this with a smile but it's very important is 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 about being unreasonable about what is right right you know, yeah you know and and it, it's sometimes hard to do but it it's you you know it's okay to be stubborn about what you believe in is right and and always remind yourself of that and you don't always win and people don't always believe you but at least you 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 go to bed at night knowing you know i i, I stuck to what i believe is right and 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 that is a daily thing you deal with you, mm -hmm. you know in, in in the process of working to create something this you, you know putting yourself out there and 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 the values that you believe in as a designer that you know are is right and and how they apply to this particular circumstance and so, so those are some of the things that we've just sort of, I, I wouldn't say we're codifying, but sort of being very clear about some ideas about our work and our approach that we, we think are, are very important. Yeah, I think I think those are, well, that's like a Bible for, for designers, I think, and people interested in the space to, to play from. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree. Those values are very, very similar to, it's a lot of thought I've, I've been given recently with, with our team as well, but I think you've put it in such an elegant way. I mean, no, bravo, brilliant. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, the thing, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, getting to the point where, you know, people start like to ask you, how much longer are you going to do this? Right. I don't want to tell you how long I've been doing it or how old I am, but, um, and I just keep thinking, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And if you can figure out how to, do it well and um, do, you know, make a good living at it and, mm. and, and ride with the changes. You know, that's something that's, that's sometimes challenging to do. You, you have a way of doing things. You have things that you think are right and the world shifts under you. Mm. And one day you look at it and say, well, that's not right anymore. Um, which that, I, that, that sort of phenomenon is accelerating. But the other way to look at it is that, wow, I've got a whole new thing to figure out here. Um, isn't that a lot of fun? So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. I was talking talking to. It's one of those um, crafts. Of it. I don't know if it's true of all other other disciplines, but design is one of those sort of love hates. You can't, you can't seem to. I, I personally can't switch off from thinking about it every moment of the day. It's almost like a love affair, but at the same time with a love affair, there's obviously the frustration and the passion that you get, and that's sometimes grating. And it, there's always this push pull, but I think that's what keeps you engaged with with wanting to keep doing it and and, and creating things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Right. Um, where to next? I think I'm gonna have to touch on, on beats because I mean, sure. what? <laughs> I know you've spoken about this probably thousands of times now, um, but 
how did you how did you come to, to form that relationship with with Dr. Dre and, and get involved with that with that project? Yeah, that's it's a really great story, um, and it was, it's it's a very important time in my life that actually continues. I mean, it's a very different thing right now what we're doing with Beats, but um, but you know, it, yeah, it um, is one of those things fairly serendipitous that I. Um, uh, an individual came to me and said, you know, he had this sort of notion of working with um, individuals in the music industry around creating products and it had somehow arranged a meeting with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine and, and mm -hmm. realized that and I somehow learned that they might be interested in developing some products. So um, I went to that meeting and um, and it was real. It's really interesting. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like this, and um, so 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 I was introduced to this individual. But what was interesting to me was that you know, so here I am. I'm a total born and raised Silicon Valley nerd, right? Um, of course, love music and, and love artists, but no no connections to that world at all. Yet somehow, strangely, I almost instantly bonded with Jimmy and Dre. Mm. Um, and and they, had, they were interested in developing audio products. And so we went on this very rapid exercise to develop some ideas for those, for that first product and the brand. It was literally was like an enormous amount of work in like two weeks. And this was just, wow. you know, classic music industry, you know, we need this now, you know, right. Yeah. And so we did it because it was fun. And, um, but, you know, like I said, it was really kind of interesting that um, I really sensed a, a lot of respect. And um, while they certainly had a lot of ideas and opinions, um, some, some, some deference, and it was, it was really interesting. And later I began to understand that um, Jimmy in particular was um, understood the artist, right? He, he and, 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 and really understood that connection between art and culture and commerce. And then that really put a very high value on the artist, especially in terms of, of course, I'm talking in terms of music, but in some ways he was looking me in, in, that, in that same, through that same lens. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of respect for the creative work and, and the, the creative approach. And so we began working together. And I remember that, that meeting after we did all this enormous amount of work, right? And we laid it all on the table and had this conversation. And, you know, the process with a client would normally be, well, let's narrow it down to three or four and we'll go work on it some more and talk about it some more and come back with some more work. And, we laid out on this, both with the, the design and the brand identity, probably 15 different ideas on the table. And in both cases, they just walked over and said, that one, right. we're going to do that one. <laughs> and I remember just being like shocked and excited by that, just sort of definitive um, confidence and, and, and belief in something. Um, and, and it, and it was, it was that way throughout, you know, there was, everything was um, shoot from the hip. Let's just do it. Let's do it now. Let's get it done. We'll figure it out. You know, if there's problems. We'll figure it out later. Sometimes that was not a good thing, but, um, but it was, it was, it was really exciting, you know, and then within, you know, months, all of a sudden I'm in design reviews with, not with Jimmy and Dre, what with, what with Diddy and Lady Gaga. And sometimes it was Oliver Stone was in the building and, you know, it was just this right. sort of crazy <laughs> world. 
um, you know, going to Grammy parties and things like that. But but you know, which was exciting, and I but I still always felt like a, a foreigner in the, in that world for sure. But you know, ultimately, you know, I I, um, I really grew to um, respect and love Jimmy Iovine and and in his brilliance. He was sometimes very difficult, sometimes very demanding, sometimes very enigmatic, but was almost always right. And almost <laughs> and could always see the forest with the trees and 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 understood that. And and the, the big opportunity he saw from the very beginning was that, you know, for his audience, a younger audience, there was no high performance audio brand. It just didn't exist. You know, Bose was your dad's headphone. Mm -hmm. Sennheiser was there, but kind of esoteric. Sony was, you know, a mainstream consumer electronics brand. There just, there wasn't anything there for his audience to gravitate towards. And, and he really thought that from a marketing point of view, he could treat the headphone as the star and use all of his tools and all of his connections and everything that he had to to market that in the same way he had marketed a music a, a piece of music or an mm -hmm. artist, and um, I just I thought that was brilliant and, and and amazing and and of course wanted to be part of that. And and Dre for his part, you know, he he is um, is a perfectionist when it comes to to the, to the music he creates. Um, I mean, he will sometimes work on a single song for a year in the studio is getting it just right. And he really had this um, idea that, you know, he's, I remember the first meeting we, and we put this on the box. He said, people are not hearing my music. Yeah. And, and he said, oh, you know, I, I spend all this time crafting my sound and then people listen to it through crappy white earbuds, which I always found ironic, the crappy white ear cub, earbud company bought them, but, um, yeah, <laughs> but you know that 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 was that was his thing. Like, look, you know, Jimmy, he would say, Jimmy and I, we 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 create this sound. We know what the sound should be like. We want to design the headphones so we can make sure that the sound we created, that people can actually hear it. And and that was you know so the, the impetus you know from from the experience point of view with the product. So anyway, that that's how I how I got into it, and then it just we we developed a business relationship that was again a partnership not it really was you know we were in, involved in the business and seeing a return on the sales of the products which was really hard for a few years um but then the thing exploded and mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it was amazing um as i said there were a lot of challenges in working with individuals that were fairly new to the product development process and very used to getting things done quickly and changing it at the last minute um, that was what used to drive me crazy. It, it, it'd say, you know, it, this is not like going back into the studio and readjusting some some sliders and knobs. It's not. No, you know, thing, things are being cut in steel right now. So yeah, all the tooling. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to <laughs> change that right now. Okay, it's a little late for that. But you know, but it it after a while, it you know, there was some understanding was there. But but you know, again, love the work, love the relationship. Um, it was. A uh, fantastic journey, and um, it just—it's it's an incredible part of my life. So, so diving back on on the beach, what what do you think made it so successful? Was it 
was it it sounds like a, a combination of you know know the brand know the products very well was it the product and that that partnership of market that and the partnership around the marketing piece with, with all these different connections that that brought it brought it to life or was it just because it was you know a perfect market opportunity and then you delivered an incredible thing there was a lot of things that made it successful mm. as, as, as aforementioned the opportunity right that this sort of this thing didn't exist for, for the audience um Another you know, thing that Jimmy was very aware of was that the, the, the transition that was happening in terms of content and how you receive and listen to content, that it was going to be making its way onto the phone. And you know, it was at that time was the iPod, but that, that was going to be changing. Mm. Um, and that you know, in the past, you know, you, you know, in his generation, you experienced sound through these big speakers in your living room or bedroom that you're going to be moving to these things in your body and, and that, that was it was a very important thing to be part of that um and it, it was just sort of this creating this energy around the idea right and 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 the idea of dre and who he was and the uh, the design of the products which you know we i was always i was very happy that they saw that taking a a, a very relatively clean and sophisticated approach of design they're they're still iconic they have you know very recognizable qualities but mm. things that were were well well designed and 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 in a way is is as clean as possible they understood that um another thing which i think i think we can take some responsibility for was you know i i remember working on the first product and and realizing that this this is this is wearable technology, right? People are, are putting it on their bodies. And looking at headphones that are out, were out in the world at the time, that many, of course, had great acoustic performance, but were all designed from this sort of very functional perspective, right? There were ear cups that were sized for your head. There were um, angle adjustments, extensions, ergonomic um, affordances, comfort affordances, acoustic affordances affordances, reliability, but I never felt like no one ever actually started with what does it look like on someone's head? Right. And, yeah. And, and how can you make that something that you actually feel very good about wearing um, and put the brand in the forefront? And, you know, I remember, so I was doing some sketches and I had printed out this highly articulated mechanical looking headphone and and the front view and just drew a single line, curved line from ear to ear, right? And and I started thinking, well, how can I clean this mess up, right? How can I mm. pull all these things together into a more cohesive looking thing that that has its its own strength and, and outline and, and identity? And and that was sort of the impetus that we took. We 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 were designing not just all the functional things, but also putting it on the body and figuring out how could we make this look good on the body right and and look and it's something that people would be excited about not just wearing in their bedroom but out on the street and i think that was an aspect of it that, that hadn't really been done before and then and, and people had not taken that perspective and it 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 took the industry by storm i remember uh, like four years after we'd launched the product going to the consumer electronics show and just seeing booth after booth with attempts at doing the same thing many of them failing miserably, but, you know, sort of trying yeah. to sort of build some sort of element of quote unquote style into these products that there's, there's many were a disaster, but it was kind of satisfying to see that this movement that, that, that we'd created. Yeah. Um, Cause you transformed, you know, something that is, 
you know, music is very personal, but then you, you've, you've created a, a product that really helps, you know, individuals express their self-identity very publicly. So that, yeah. uh, what, what a driver. The, from a design point of view, I remember getting, I can't remember what generation of Beats headset that I, I brought, but I remember um, playing, with, playing with the product when I first got it and being fascinated by the mechanic, uh, which rolls out from the, the headband. Yeah, the extension. Yeah. The extension. Was that a tricky thing to get to get to build? Yeah, it was. Well, one of the things that was really tricky, and it took us a couple of generations to get right, was there's an arc to the headband, and but it has to move through different states, right? And mm. and so to maintain that consistent arc from a resting point to when it's on your head, and get it to bend in that way, and and stay in that same curve even when it's extended was actually quite a, uh, an engineering challenge to, to get that to happen. It's little things like that that always you realize are important, but take an enormous amount of, of work to, to get right. Um, and yeah, but when we've always focused a lot of time and energy and money on the details, the, me the mechanical details in terms of how the thing operates and extends and, and, and you know, the best materials we can possibly afford within that. It's, that's always been an, an, an impetus in the, in the work for Beats. Um, but I, you know, I think the other thing which I the one I give Jimmy one hundred and ten percent of the credit for was this sort of cultural relevance, um, you know, and sort of building this idea of, of beats, you know, as something that was bigger than all of us. But I want to be part of that, right? I think that was such a powerful accelerant on on, on demand of this sort of this this idea that that building you know, something that really means something to feel uh, people and they want to aspire to be part of and. I used to characterize it as, you know, you want a situation when individual buys a product, leaves their little one bedroom apartment with those headphones around their neck and they're, and they're, and they're transformed, right? They're, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're part of something else that, 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 that feels really good and, and powerful in their life. And that, that I think was, was a combination of all the, the, the design and the, and the, and the marketing and, and the ideas behind the product. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, the numbers speak for themselves, but it's such a, I think you're right, it's such a cultural shift, something that's become so iconic. And then, uh, you know, it's, I think it's outstanding. It's, it's, it's got that coolness that, you know, Nike and Adidas um, brought to the, the sportswear and then on the, in a headset. And I think since then, you've seen like, you know, Bang & Olufsen, who've obviously been great audio players for a long time, try and catch up, I think, and, and tap into that. That market it's almost like no one had realized and uh sounds like this you know that the beat really captured there's a youth audience and no one no one's speaking to them and no one's designing products that work yeah pulling the segment reflections on a world leading designer so <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to um designers looking to move into growing and building teams as the potential traps that you can fall into along that that, that path well, yeah, I think I've, I've mentioned a lot of that, that it's mm -hmm. you know, the first one was, you know, hiring people that are better than you. And that and that, I think the thing that, that is may is is implicit in that. But I'll go with the mention is, is never be threatened by people that you think are, are potentially more talented or more aggressive or more, mm -hmm. you know, it's that having those individuals as part of your team, again, if they fit culturally will will be of extreme value to you. And so it's 
it's very important. I, I, I think a lot of designers who are growing teams, you know, want to maintain this sort of very dictatorial lineage of decision-making and, and creative direction. And, and, and that is important in, in some ways and, and could be more important to some individuals than the other. I think it's what's important is to understand where you want to go and, and build the team to get you there. And, 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 and don't be threatened by, by, by talent and, and aspiration. And because those, those are things that you actually step back and go, yeah, I want, of course you want it. You want a team of people that are really talented and want to go make something happen. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, uh, my opinion, you don't want a, a team of order takers who just sit there waiting for you to tell you, you to tell them what to do, right? That yeah. not only is you're not going to get as far, that's a, fucking lot of work right <laughs> to be telling everybody every line to draw everything to pull everything you know so i, I, I that that's my opinion is is yeah. and i think um you know the other thing about building a team i found is is to lead but also to give space right mm. you, you of course have to provide leadership and direction but you also need to give people space to grow and learn and you know give people enough rope to fail but not hang themselves kind of thing you know yeah. just really build that into that understanding that part of your job is the development of those people that work for you and giving them the space that they can do that. And again, it will serve you, right? As, as they become better and stronger. I mean, we, we, we fell into this approach to um, our, our studio almost by necessity where, you know, in where we live, the, um, the salary structure is through the roof, partially because of the cost of living where we live, and partially because we're we're competing for talent against the likes of Google and Amazon and Apple mm-hmm. and so forth. Right? Um, so we started, you know, we began to realize we were really good at identifying and nurturing talent. It just we just seemed to have an ability, you know. We so we started um, really building our team through internships. And, you know, we would run multiple internships and identify the ones that we thought were, had a lot of potential and then invest in them for a year or two. And pretty soon we found that we had team members with a couple years of experience that were outperforming other candidates we'd see with 10 years of experience, right? <laughs> we, right. Just, we just figured out, well, we actually know how to identify and, and nurture and grow people very well. So let's do that. And it, it also helps out that they're beginning their careers. And um, the problem we found out, though, is we have such a, and this might sound boastful, boastful, but we have such a great environment that people never want to leave. So we've <laughs> <laughs> figured out how to manage that and allow it to grow. People grow and grow financially. And, and luckily, it's worked out all right. But but it's, you know, my advice is, is, is really look at building a team as building a team, not just hiring people. And, you know, and finally, I'd say, um, always be cognizant of what's important hmm. and, and set your standards high, right? It's in, and that doesn't mean you have to be draconian about it, but, but really, I think people knowing that your expectations on their work are high and then the level that they do and the creativity that they put forward, having, making that obvious, I think is important. Um, and again, not in a way that's, that's, you know, mean spirited or demeaning when it's not met, but in a way that said, look, you know, this, this is what we do here. And, and we expect you to, to, to work, to, to meet those, those levels and, and be rewarded when you get there. I think it's, it's, it's a really important thing to keep that people understand. 
Mm. That leads perfectly into my next next question. How do you what what is good design direction, and how do you set good expectations that that help individual perform and, and deliver the work? That's that's a really great question. You didn't give me that one in advance. That's not sorry, right. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, again, I, I, there, I think there's multiple levels to design direction. Yeah, right? and, and I think you know we. we work very hard of you know we have this sort of saying here about the the work we do at the beginning of a project and we say it's um figuring out what's worth designing in the first place right and that that that's sort of our approach to strategy work is is not this sort of pie in the sky strategy it's really this notion of what's worth designing in the first place you either our partner or client are about to spend anywhere between five and $50 million putting this thing out in the world, what's worth doing in the first place, right? And, and that helps set us get this sort of shared understanding of where we're gonna go with it. And then part of my job is sort of maintaining the boundary conditions around that, right? And, 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 I, and I like that idea of boundary conditions because you can cross boundaries, you just need to know when you're doing it, right? Yeah. It, it, the important thing about that right so but but and sort of manage people to that um and i i like to i a lot of my role especially now is this sort of um wise uh wise person seeing the forest for the trees kind of thing right it, you know <laughs> I, many of my team get their close their no, not nose to the paper but nose to the pixels <clears throat> so close that they start missing opportunities and start, you know, getting going down a path that may not be a good path to go. So part of my job is to make sure that path is good and <clears throat> that they're really understanding and, and seeing that opportunity. And then sometimes it's just, you know, looking at something and, and through the, the, the benefit of experience and viewpoint, seeing what needs to be done. Right. And, and really working with people to do that. And I, you know, I, I'm very, you know, I, I personally am cautious about um, being highly directive with people mm. from a, from a, when it gets down to that, that particular object. But I will do that when I feel either an opportunity is missed or you're going down another path. That's not, it's not the best path. Yeah. And then there's sometimes it's like, look, man, I've done this a thousand times you're better off doing it this way. We'll get a better result, right? Yes. Much better product. So just do it. All right. <laughs> it's just uh, sometimes that happens, but really, uh, you know, I think it's again this sort of I, I kind of zoom in and out of things. And like I said early on in this conversation, I do like this sort of um, sit down at your desk and let's figure it out. I mean, one of the things I've hated about the pandemic is the inability to do that, and. And at first I found what was really driving me crazy is my team would prepare PowerPoints to share with me, right? Right. And I'm like, no, I know there's filtering going on here. So I don't want you to filter, <laughs> just show me what you're doing so we can talk about it. You know, it's sort of, kind of almost outlawing the notion of presenting internally by PowerPoint, just to show me what's on your screen. But that, that has been one of the things I've hated about the pandemic. But anyway, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, again, sort of a very active, take a very active role in creative direction, but at the same time being supportive and, and allowing people to follow their passions and pursuits. Because I think you'll, again, end up with a better result if you do that. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Brilliant, very wise words on this. I'm going to I'm going to skip on to the to a new segment for us, which is um, listener questions. If that's okay. Right. Yeah. So, Cam, who is a uh, a creative designer, animator in in England, has asked, "What are the sacrifices that you've had to make along the way in order to achieve uh, where you've got to in your career so far?" It's an interesting thing, I, you know, because I am I am so blessed in, in my life. I'm, it's hard to think of one. I mean, I, I, I whatever success I've had has been pretty organic, um, and I I count myself very fortunate to have a very solid family and personal life. I have actually have six children, which people find amazing. <laughs> so people, you know, say that that's heroic, but I do. And, and an amazing relationship with my wife. We live in a wonderful place and have a beautiful home. And, you know, and, and I don't, um, you know, there, there are periods in my life when I've had to really burn the midnight oil. Mm -hmm. But I think I've, I've and, and I think this translates to our office. I think I have a philosophy, which is you do that when you have to, you don't make it part of your existence. Mm -hmm. It's just, just by default. And, um, you know, and it took me a while to learn that, that I, early in my career, I would probably work 60 to 80 hours a week, even if I didn't have to. Right. And then right. after a while, you just get sick of seeing the office. So yeah. Um, yeah. I now reserve those as when you need to bear down and do it, you do it. When things are a little slow, you take advantage of it. You know, but and and because I think having a healthy personal life makes you a better professional. Um, let's see. I, I probably had to sacrifice a few business friendships along the way. Um, <laughs> just things that happen that end up not working out well and end up affecting those. And I, I, that that's something I, I regret. Um, you know, I I, yeah, I think I probably have a few enemies out there. It's almost impossible when you trying to make some things happen you don't piss people off um but you know honestly i, I think you know balance is the key to the long haul right mm. if um right now being where i am and seeing you not seeing any sort of desirable end to what i'm doing it's partially because i've maintained that balance and but 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 you have to be overt about it you know because the work can absorb you mm. um, the de people will make constant demands of you and your time and you know if if you begin to take this attitude that that's the norm and i have to keep everybody happy and make every do everything i have to do then you end up burning out so um so the short answer is i made a hell of a lot of sacrifices i can honestly say that um, mm -hmm. and, um but that's by by design yeah and, i think which is even a better takeaway because if you can get the balance great family life an incredible career um yeah I think that's a great place. The next one comes from um, Matt, also England-based listener. We're, we're kind of bouncing back to Apple, but I, I guess you'll probably sure. stick it in some of these. Yeah. Is one of the biggest myths or one of your favorite myths slash misunderstandings about Apple IDG? That, that's a pretty easy question. And, and it's that um, this sort of belief that everything at Apple is amazing and everything works so well and everything comes out so perfect. Um, it's when I was there, it's just as messy as you could believe, right? It's like any place like that, and especially any place that that is doing things that are challenging and and having smart creative people in. 
Um, always messy, <laughs> never linear. Um, lots of starts and stops, lots of mistakes, lots of redos. Um, well, there's people involved, right? So it's going to be a messy endeavor. And, and um, you know, there's, so there's this myth that, you know, everything created at Apple was perfectly planned and executed flawlessly and happened on time. And it's not, it's, I don't know anywhere in the world that ideal exists or that yeah. idea is true. And, and especially again, if in a place where you, you do put um, really smart people that are really, um, really aggressive and really um, inspired to do interesting things, it's gonna be a lot of chaos and a lot of conflict and that's what happens. And, and in many ways, that's what part of that is, is just making, making that stuff happen and, and capturing that energy. Yeah, mess, mess is part of the process and we've got to embrace it, right? Which is yeah, no, it's 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 you know it's 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 part of the world. Absolutely. Um, your final final one we've got here is from uh, Dan in the US. Quite a philosophical one, but I think I feel like you're probably one of the best people to answer this. <laughs> what makes a designer versus a great designer? Oh boy, I mean, I think we could talk an hour about defining what great designer means. Yeah, um, pretty true. <laughs> I, if you know, if I took that to mean my my own sort of definition of a combination of quality of work and impact of that work. Hmm. Um, you know, of course there, there's, there's an element of talent you have to have as a designer and there, your, your ability to design and execute, execute work at a certain level of integrity, I think is just, is, is a foundation. But, but I think the difference between, I, I often say this, that a, that a good designer can make one thing you know, develop it, execute it, build a model, the model's perfect, beautiful, wonderful. It's a great designer that can figure out how to do that at scale, right? Mm -hmm. And, and be, because the process of taking that idea, that perfect idea and, and replicating it in thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, and getting it out into the world and then having an impact on people, is is a, a very takes a very different skill set than simply the creative and technical sides of what we do, and and it's often the, the say that really it's it's the social side of what we do that is not always understood. Mm -hmm. If 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 you're going to do that, you have to figure out how to convince literally an army of people that your idea and your vi vision is worth doing and worth doing well, um, and. That is that is a monumental task, and it and it and it takes a certain level of experience and intellect, intellect and capability and and skill set to do that, and 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 then there are other things, you know, of understanding humanity and 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 really caring about the impact of the work that you do, and that, those are all very important. But ultimately, to make that impact, of figuring out how to make it happen at scale, you know. Um, you know, I, you know, the sort of idea of what career advice would you give myself? You know, I, mm. if, I, if I were if I were back in school, I would um, I would definitely learn how to write, um, and I would probably take acting or stand up or speech classes. Right, those those are the things. I mean, it took me probably a decade to get comfortable with public speaking. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And, 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 and really, you know, figure out how to do that, feel good about it and, and be good at it. Uh, it's not something that's even broached in design school, maybe, you know, lightly within a class presentation, but sort of really, you know, your, your ability to not only do amazing work, but convince people that it's important and worth investing in can be almost as important as those core abilities themselves. Because it is, in fact, a social thing. I mean, unless you're the CEO and you own the corporation and everybody listens to you and you've got all the money you need, then maybe it's different. But, you know, for, for most designers in the world, having that ability to get an army of engineering, marketing and operations people believing in what they're doing and, and, and doing what it takes to get it out in the world intact is, is I think, the, what separates the great from the good. Incredible. Incredible. I think that's a, a really good spot for us to, to wrap up and let you get on with your, I'm sure, incredibly busy day. Um, Robert, if people want to find out more about your work, where's the best place to, to send them to? I, um, and let's see, I guess, I mean, I, I have, um, there's our ammunition Instagram at ammunition group. Um, there's my personal at Robert D. Bruner. Um, and of course, our website. And there is an email address on the website if you want to ask me a question. I'm not going to give my email address out here. You can go to the ammunition group email address and it'll get to Sarah, and Sarah will forward it to me. So awesome. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Loved having you on the show. Um, hugely, hugely insightful conversation. Appreciate okay. it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Happy to. And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more, head over to designpodcast.co. And if you'd like to support us, please share the episode with friends and family or support us on patreon.com forward slash the design podcast. Take care, guys.